Greetings, ladies and gentlemen of our fellow <laughs> pandemic quarantine nation. Um, my name is Jonathan Hopkins, and this is a psychosocial blurb, I think I would call it, that I'm going to use to lead into our next episode here. So rather than the zany intro music that you deal with, you'll get that coming up shortly. Um, just wanted to give a quick update on life, where this show is at, and what to expect going forward, because I do have a small amount of episodes I've been sent on to get out to you all, but that has been taking longer than anticipated, largely due to finding finding and defining a new normal with work, especially being at home and counseling clients from where I'm at here and just trying to make that make that work in a way that promotes good healthy boundaries of my own self-care and sees me not feeling incredibly burnt out at the end of the day. But if anything, that is what I could say has been the the impetus, if you will, for the the gaps in time between the last episode and up up until now. So my goal is to change that in the coming weeks. And for anybody listening to this now, I thank you for sticking around this long. Trying to find energy to do much of anything right now has been difficult given how topsy-turvy everything is, but I also want to make sure that as a therapist and as someone who is actively working on their own self-care, that that's something I can maybe give progress reports on with every episode here going into the future. So I want to try something out a little bit different and do something like this before every episode just to maybe even give you a rundown of what the episode will contain and just an update on life and the pandemic of coronavirus. So to that end, I have a great episode coming up here with my good friend, Eric Goebel, and we talk about a rather poignant film, given the times, called The Road, starring Viggo Mortensen. So I hope you stick around, give that a listen, and full disclosure, in some of the upcoming episodes you'll listen to, you're definitely going to hear some pretty heavy themes, um, some of which dealing with life, death, suicide, um, subject matter found within the films being explored and discussed. And for anybody who listens to this and who may know me, I want to make it clear that I use this podcast not only as an avenue to explore film, but also to have very genuine discourse with the people who come on on the show. So if anything I say you may find alarming or disturbing about maybe my own well-being or health um, as I share some of my testimony and where I've come from in the past couple years. That's something that I've lived out and walked out and continue to make healthy gains with. To that degree, I want to be able to take ownership for that stuff and also celebrate my own mental health and well-being and just how I'm doing as an individual. So... Yeah, buckle up, enjoy this somewhat intense discussion about the road, and I hope you continue to come back in the coming weeks because we definitely have some some good ones lined up for you. So on that note, I'll let Porcelain Backsplash take us into this episode. Take it easy, folks. Welcome to Psychosocial Cinema, the podcast in which friends, family, and strangers discuss some of their favorite movies while exploring for deeper themes that drive us in the real world. 
Now, here's your host, Jonathan Hopkins. Welcome to another lovely, probably the most cheerful episode of psychosocial cinema known to humankind. Tonight, we are about to go on an adventure, a lonesome adventure, a long adventure. Maybe not in runtime for this episode, but for the film we're about to talk about, The Road. The Road. The Road. And tonight, I have longtime friend Eric Goble on the podcast. How you doing, sir? I, I'm excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you are welcome. I'm Jonathan Hopkins. If you've never listened to this show before, welcome. Psychosocial Cinema, we like to talk about movies, mental health, memories surrounding these films, and why we enjoy them, and what makes us tick while watching them. And so, without further ado, we're talking about Cormac McCarthy's film, not that he directed, but it's the film adaptation of one of his great works, The Road. Eric, when you told me that this is the film that you wanted to discuss tonight, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie to you. I had a moment of pause because (laughs) I can only remember one other time watching this film. And it was with my other friend, Eric Erdman, who I think you've met before way way back in the day. And the thing that stuck out the most was, wow, that's probably the most depraved thing I've ever seen. (laughs) Not for like the... what you're seeing on screen but just for literally the emotional depravity of the road is something that is a very pronounced element of the film and leaves a a mark on you by the time the credits roll yeah i'm curious behind the genesis of why you chose this and when did you first see it i i don't know when i first saw the movie um i i remember Hearing a, a recommendation from a, a friend of mine many years ago, um, it, it actually was definitely more than a decade ago, um, that uh, it was a great movie, and I kind of brushed it off, and uh, I think I developed a interest in kind of survival-type post-apocalyptic things, and in a search for movies in that vein, I ran across The Road, and I watched it by myself. Mm-hmm. It, alone (laughs) and i remember thinking to myself after watching the movie that that was probably the most depressing uh yet also most impactful experience like emotionally i've ever you know you know been through with a movie um and uh, whether or not i remember the film and all of its parts i definitely remember thinking to myself that was the most uh depressing you know uh situation i can i remember being moved into having depressing feelings and emotions from it Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah that's that uh, that's basically where i where i was and and i think we might have talked about this earlier my uh my impression of certain scenes I think what there's a question that was you know what do you remember the most uh, what scene was most impactful and there is one scene of any movie in the road that is the most memorable scene for me um uh on the bridge mm-hmm. with the with the ring 
that was. I knew my, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I just got a visual of it, visualization of that yeah. in my head right now. Um, that scene in particular, and we'll get into like a brief synopsis of what this film is about in case anybody has never seen it without us going into like full on spoiler territory. <laughs> but that scene on the bridge he's talking about is a culmination an emotional culmination for man who's played by Viggo Mortensen and his young son boy who's played by I think like Cody Smithy I think his name is I think I got that right I think I got yeah Cody Smith McPhee I left the mick out of there it's still impressive so man and boy have like started this perilous trek to go to a more, let's just say, climate, yeah, hospita- a, a climately hospitable place for them to live, yeah. with no proof or evidence of where their end location will actually be, this thing that they've envisioned. Yeah. But it's a hope that they have, we could say, deluded themselves with to like act as a catalyst for moving forward. Yeah. And along this journey, we keep on seeing man have these flashbacks to when times were better. And during these times, which is probably one of the most striking things about the film, we see these brightly lit, very vibrantly colored and framed, almost like dreamlike sequences where man is consorting with woman, who's played by Charlize Theron. And might I add... And watching it this go-around, more than anything, it is her performance in this film that hit me the most. Yeah. And we'll, we'll go into that a little bit, in, in more depth here in a little bit, but man's loss of woman ends up being the focal point of this film. And that bridge scene Eric alluded to a moment ago sees man taking off his wedding ring and the way they frame it is just like painful because he sets the ring on a railing of the bridge no more than probably like a foot width and he's just taking his finger and slowly pushing the ring and the shot keeps on going from like his finger slowly pushing it to the edge and kind of like looking over the edge of like the height you're waiting for this ring to fall off the edge and kind of like go and i'm having a moment here does he actually push it off the edge or does he leave it there i think he leaves it there i'm pretty sure it's left there and it, it's kind of left to the audience to know whether or not he pushed it off the edge or if it just sits there i i'm under the impression that it sits there if I me too i don't think he had the full-on courage to yeah. push it off completely i think for more more than anything maybe in that moment that was him relinquishing maybe some of the emotional control that trauma had in his life while being able to still be emotionally fit to guide boy for the rest of the journey but before we get further eric i hear that you enjoy lonesome experiences i I do you Uh, like you like being by yourself i know you're married you got a kid yep. so in the real world in the real you, world. you do live a connected family life well let's plug into the matrix here for a sure, moment sure it is well known 
to myself, maybe nobody else listening, that Eric and I like to dabble in the the video games, as the kids would call them. And there's one in particular that you were regaling me yes. about right before we recorded. Could you let the audience know what that is? Yes, I'm a huge fan of The Long Dark, the uh, winter survival experience. It is a fantastic experience, uh, single player, uh, surviving alone in the uh, Canadian wilderness uh, in the wintertime. And um, it's, yeah, I, I've dumped a lot of hours into that. And uh, I could talk through so many experiences uh, and all the planning and all the, the, the things that you do to uh, not die. <laughs> uh, it, it's a great experience. I love playing it. I want to probably be, probably be playing it for quite a while. And Eric gave me some personal impressions of it right before we recorded, which prompted me to immediately go look at my Steam library because <laughs> he's like, yeah, you know, the game runs for about 30 bucks. You might be able to find it on sale here and there. And I think I picked it up in a Humble Bundle, which is a whole other website that does charitable game sales where you pick a nonprofit or an organization that's doing really good work and you can buy games for your computer they even do it for xbox and playstation sometimes mm -hmm. like digital downloads yeah. of which i'll link humble bundle in the show notes for this week i think if you're into buying video games it's a wonderful platform to be using even though i think they aren't they part of like the gamestop con conglomerate or something like oh, i'd rather not know i just i'll be blissfully ignorant if that's the case <laughs> I, I, th I think they are like gamestop yeah. i think did acquire them or maybe let them go at some point i don't yeah. know I'll do some research on that, but either way, you you can pick the companies and it'll let you know how much of those game sales is going to them. And I, for one, have used TakeThis.org for the longest time because they're a organization that travels to gaming conventions and they will set up quiet spaces for people to get off the show floor and oh, go wow. work with licensed professionals there. Not a like they're getting a therapy session, but more so that they, they can be provided with mindfulness-based practices on the spot there to ground themselves, do breathing mechanics. Um, yeah, so stuff like that and of the ilk to center themselves if they deal with like social anxiety or any kind of like mental health-related issues pertaining to like crowds and being in big wow. places like that. So, cool. um, But I have the long dark downloading in the background as we speak that will immediately date this episode so for those of you listening that means it's on my computer i probably have played it at this point and it failed miserably that said i too can say that i have had a bit of a reformation with my gaming priorities i mentioned at the start of the episode right before this one on whiplash that I have now passed my licensing examination to become a licensed mental health counselor here in the state of Florida. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Awesome. And, you know, that if I can make a funny little analogy, the road in passing this exam, pun intended, mm -hmm. was a rather long and dark journey. And as I mentioned in that previous episode... My failures of that exam a couple times really unearthed a lot of unhealthy perspectives that I had developed of my own 
tying my self-worth into passing an exam that will allow me to get a better job, make more money, take care of my family. And if I can't do this, what, what does that mean of me as a clinician? Am I actually, you know, am I responsible to be working with people? Do I actually know my stuff? And inherently, I know those are all like to some extent irrational thoughts I'm having, negative cognitions, if you will, and they're not true. But in the moment when you're feeling that kind of stuff, you know, there's not much, and the, which makes my job difficult as a therapist. I've worked, I've worked and ha- I am working with many people who are in their moments and who are experiencing very powerful emotions that can't simply be refuted or argued away. And I'm I'm wondering about you, if you don't mind talking a little bit. Like you're, open book. you were mentioned to me, like even with, like with work, that there's mm-hmm. like a season you went through, yeah, where like you kind of had like the rug ripped out from underneath you. Are you comfortable talking about that? I would be happy to. Yeah. Well, any, then, any part of it. Tell me about your misery, Eric. Uh, I I am known to talk uh, a lot, so you feel free to interject whenever. But I can start off by saying that I used to work in a um, well, I worked in the same industry. I worked as a, in software, um, but I used to work for a company um, that I started to realize I was being asked to do things that weren't quite ethical. And um, I began to be very convicted about what was going on and uh, started to realize that you know, I didn't really like the position that I was put in. And I started looking for other jobs. I knew that I could be more successful mm-hmm. with things that I was learning and I was kind of being held back where I was. I, now, granted, at the time, I felt very blessed you know, with what I was getting financially from there and, and the things that I was able to learn, but um, it, it started to really chew on me to, to have to um, do things that I, I were unsavory in my eyes. And so I started looking for a job and I began to get really bitter about what I was currently dealing with. And um, up until that point, whenever I had uh, applied for a job, I always got a call back and I always got an offer. And so I was kind of conditioned to be very confident in what was going to happen. And so Mm -hmm. I started looking at the Pacific Northwest as an area to move to. I thought that I really didn't like where I was at the time. And I thought it'd be nice to make a really complete change. And so I only applied to like areas around like Seattle, Washington. Um, and I have a background education-wise in game development. So that was something I wanted to kind of transition into if possible. And so I focused on uh, game developers, but also branched off into other things. Um, to my surprise, even though, uh, you know, always shoot high, you know, and, and I, I applied for a job at Bungie. He made me think of like <laughs> shooting high with the pistol while I'm in the film. Sorry, continue. <laughs> no worries. Um, and so there was a position open at the time. This was before Destiny Two, uh, and I I got a callback. I this was one of the first rounds of, of applications that I put out, and I got a callback, uh, and they wanted to talk to me, and I was ecstatic. You know, I, I, I that was like the pinnacle place that I could work. If, mm-hmm. if, if you work in the video game industry, like what better place? Yeah. They did Halo. I mean, so, um, and, and I know that there's a separation now, you know, 343 Studios and, and, and uh, Bungie, but still, the, the name means a lot. And uh, so time goes on and I progress through the interview process 
all of the other leads I continued to follow, but none of them panned out. And it began to look like Bungie was going to be the way that um, I was going to go. And me and my wife were very excited about that, the prospect of moving. And we made plans. We, we figured out what it would cost to take a trip to move to to uh, Bellevue. To, and I don't know if anyone, <laughs> if you know much about the uh, process of interviews, there's many when it comes to, uh, well, not interviews in general, but for the that industry. Um, there is a phone interview that was kind of an entryway one, a second phone interview, a third phone interview, and then they wanted they flew me out to Bellevue. You actually got flown out to Bungie. Yes, I, I toured the studio. Um, wow. And um, that was when you go through, you run the gambit. You talk with the leaders of all of their departments. I talked to 13 people in one day. It was an all-day interview. Um, and I, I thought it went really well with the exception of one interview. And my suspicion was correct, too. Um, I, you know, I work in a very technical field, but sometimes when, when it comes to quality assurance, there's a lot of people that don't have technical skills. And so coding, programming, however you want to refer to it, um, it's kind of a mixed bag with people who claim to be have my title, basically. And so they definitely grill you pretty hard with uh, the technical aspect. And unfortunately, with the time difference, the very last uh, interview was with two people from their um, programming team. And I did not do well with that. And apparently one person was kind of gave me a thumbs up, but rarely. Um, but of the 13 people, they require it to be unanimous with, with uh, a yay or a nay. And unfortunately, I had one person, from what I was told, that didn't um, give me a positive uh, thumbs up. And so that cost me the, the, the job. Um, this was about maybe a week later, I had come back, people that I knew uh, at work, my, my job at the time, already knew that I was kind of on my way out looking for a place to go. Um, and they were real supportive of me and it was really great. And I, I told them I didn't get it and they didn't believe me. <laughs> they thought that I was messing with them. And, and uh, what they didn't realize is I spent probably three or four hours driving around the middle of nowhere in North Tampa uh, with, with my wife just trying to get my head on straight because I had thought that that was going to be what was happening. Everything was, was stacking up to go there. And um, it was it was like said and done in my mind, you know, and, and I thought I was not only going to have this escape from what I thought was so terrible, but that it would be like a dream come true. And so there was a huge um, upset. I remember being, you know, being on the phone. My wife's watching me, and I have notes on my um, on my notebook, and I have yes and no and that uh, written out. And I'm on the phone with the the HR coordinator, and I'm, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I hear her tone, and I know, you know, what's about to be said. You know, look, we're sorry come back in, in a year or so and prove to us that you've made some changes here and maybe we have something for you. And uh, they were actually very gracious in the way they, they made a very personal experience. It wasn't just a, an email that said, sorry, no, no go, um, which I, I'm very thankful for. But, um, you know, I, I, I circled no, you know, and my so my wife could see it. And, you know, she got really upset and, and I barely made it through the phone call without, you know, losing it. 
um, because it was so jarring mm-hmm. of a change, you know, from what my expectation was. And um, so I was very disheartened uh, going through that. And the next, you know, next month or two, I still didn't find anything. Um, I expanded to look, you know, make my job search somewhere in Tampa Bay area as kind of a last ditch effort to find something desperate to find something different. And finally, two and a half, three months later, um, a colleague of mine now working at this new place, you know, asked me out of the, out of the blue, Hey, you looking for something? And I was, (laughs) so I, uh, I applied, uh, it was kind of the first interview was a little bit rocky, but um, made the connection, got the job, and I've been working there ever since. And I absolutely love what, where I work. I love the, the people that I work with, people that I work for. Everyone's amazing. And um, it might not be in the gaming world, but it is something that I still um, still work as a software development engineer in tests. Um, and it's something that I really love to do. And I wouldn't change anything about that i love where i work i have no i don't want to leave i love it it's great but um but getting there was a very you know difficult time and there was a good two or three months where it was very i was very depressed because of the the situation i thought i was stuck in but um but yeah that was that was a difficult really difficult time for me um and uh, there are probably some parallels with mm-hmm. the road um, and, and that experience, but um, I think that I think that that was kind of where we had uh, kind of reconnected after uh, many years. Is I saw something from that uh, you had posted, I think, on Facebook or what was that in regards to? I'm kind of curious. It was about failing an exam. So, yep, you saw me. That must have been the first time that I failed the exam. Yeah. Right. And that was probably maybe like two, two and a half years ago or something. Yeah. Not, maybe not that long, but it's been... Yeah, two and a half years would be right. Because I mean, it's taken me three attempts and passed it, I could say that happily. But in between each go, you had to wait three months as a refractory period yeah. before you could sign up again. And so... Not only did I wait those three months, but probably a number of months after that because I couldn't. Yeah, it's a, that sounds about yeah. right. I, I, I saw that, and I kind of saw some parallels with what I had kind of dealt with, and I wanted to share some words of encouragement, I think, just with that story. Also, because I knew that you know we share the video game uh, interest, and, and Bungie would be would be an interesting kind of... Mm-hmm. You, would, you would understand like where that was for, for well, me... I don't know how many people from the Twitterverse who follow me on there, because I know I do have a Twitter account, and I do try to, like, advertise the show on there, and I I need to make a way better effort of doing that on my usual account that has a lot of folks who play Destiny 2 mm-hmm. and who are, you know, well-versed in, like, that that community and whatnot, so I think that'd be a, I don't know, interesting yeah. story for people to hear, and as an aside yeah one of my favorite bands i listen to code orange i don't know if, i don't know if you've heard of them or met many people have but they're just a hyper aggressive like metal outfit and one of their new songs that came out underneath it's also what their new album is titled um has a bit of lyrics in it where the what their lead guitar says it took some time but i realized the obstacle is the only way 
And so when I was going into my third exam attempt this past week, I've been listening to this song quite a bit because for anybody listening here, if you look up anything from Code Orange and you watch their music videos, a lot of their stuff is pretty garish and violent with like the videography side of things that they show. And honestly, I, I would say like definitely not like family friendly stuff or like if you're like faint of heart that you'd probably want to watch and which sounds really weird. But at any rate, I enjoy cinematic experiences with like music videos and whatnot and they like pun intended here because their second single they just put out is called swallowing the rabbit hole and like underneath and then that single in particular have kind of like developed like these two music videos that piggyback off of one another Mm -hmm. and it's telling the story but like i've been enjoying the music off this new album that they made one because like i like just the theme of underneath it all, the garbage you're working through is a deeply personal thing that when you do finally surmount what's going on, you do realize that the obstacles you faced and the stories that you learned along the way, much like the one that you just shared, mm-hmm. really does offer a unique point of like perspective and hindsight. Yeah. So for that, thank you for sharing your, your I'll just say testimony of that, which is really cool. And, you know, yeah, plans that don't go well kind of suck. And even yeah. watching Parasite, I went and saw that movie last night in Tampa for the second time with my wife yesterday. And there's a point in that film where the son asked the dad, Dad, what was your plan? What's your plan? And the dad, dad like, is like, you know, know what the best kind of plan is? No plan at all. You know why? Because when you don't have a plan, like, he uses some harsh language, like, nothing fucking matters. And, you know, you can still make a way kind of thing. It's a very, kind of gives, like, a nihilistic perspective yeah. with that. But at the same time, I don't, I honestly didn't know what my plan was going into the third one, third exam attempt. All I knew was that I took time to cut out video games and distractions for five weeks. I did the best studying that I could working eight hours a day at a counseling clinic working with kids and teens and I was prayerful about it and you know not that I'm not saying that me praying and asking God to help me pass this exam was like the magical solvent that worked but I think it was a trifecta of things and just making healthy choices to prioritize things. And I'm sure along the lines with you looking for that job, that you had to make a lot, make a lot of difficult decisions like that to stay focused and not get so detoured by emotions and yeah. the challenges that you could see that to the end. Right. Yeah, I, I think after that experience with the uh, build-up and upset, I didn't have a plan. I, in fact, I scrubbed the plan that I originally had, and that's when I started um, just looking wherever, and that's when the opportunity kind of fell in my lap. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, uh, that was the case. But, yeah, it, and I, I think that sometimes that has to be the course of action is to, like, remove all of those... Uh, 
preconceived ideas of how things are supposed to be and work out. Because if I had not had that upset, I would have still been looking for a job in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. I would have never been okay with uh, somebody asking me, hey, do you want to work here in Tampa? Yeah. Um, and But that kind of, I guess you could say it broke me. It broke me into being okay with that option, um, which I'm thankful for now, obviously. Ditto. Had I passed that exam either on my first or second time, I don't think it would have been a clinically responsible time in my career to be given that doorway to go through to, oh, now I got to turn in my supervisory hours and take a couple more classes and then I can apply for my license. Like those two upsets brought me to a point of being way more, not, I want to say analytical, but I'll say narratively analytical with the mm -hmm. way that I work with my clients now and gather information about their symptoms, the duration, their levels of functioning, what areas are being impacted, yada, yada, yada. And granted, you think, well, had, had you been doing that the whole time you're a therapist? Yeah, but not like even after you get out of grad school, they cram so much in your brain that unless you're using every last ounce of what you learn, some things do fall by the wayside yeah. in terminology, theory, you know, unless you're like constantly pursuing that continuing education, which has not always been at the forefront even for me because I have to truly care about what it is I'm learning about. And that passion has not always been there, even in my professional field, which that might sound scary to some. Well, does that, does that mean he's like appropriate to be working with people? Is he a quack? No, I know what I'm doing, especially with the population I work with. And that's something I can say with an air of like humble pride because I truly love working with kids and teenagers. Like yeah. if anything, that is the much like in the long dark, that is my pack of matches right there. And if I had a single match left to set that fire for direction, you know, this would be the population that I can relate to the most. And I feel like I've been gifted with a voice to connect with because of things like we're talking about here right now. Yeah. I can't connect with on on some superficial levels that other adults cannot. And that's something, again, I'm pr proud in a good way to say. Yeah, well, I, I could definitely attest to that because we uh, I, we met working uh, with Young Life. Young Life, yeah. And, and so we did that for a year or more. More than a year. Had to be. But Guitar man um, Eric, even back then. Was, <laughs> you played guitar for that, right? Yeah. Or did you, you did like yeah, yeah. let the music for that. Yeah. Yep. That was, uh, we did a lot of stuff. I, I enjoyed doing the skits the most. Dude, those we, skits are insane. We did really good, though. They, te I gotta they say. teeter on, like, I feel like some of them, like. Mm. like... <laughs> yeah. Some of them were, were a little do, do you too far. Actually. Do you remember the one I did with the, I'll just say, we'll call her. I won't say last name, Molly's mom. Uh-huh, yeah. And where we played these two elderly yes. people. Yes, oh my gosh. That was... And we would come out and just banter with each other. And, yes. like, it actually, like, turned into, like, this slapstick, like, Three Stooges humor where we were, yeah. like, pulling pranks and, like, slapping each other. Yeah. But I'm like, this is, like, domestic violence. It was. It was <laughs> so much domestic violence. And I think we actually noted that at some point we realized that as we, returning characters we had to explain this somehow. Yeah. Uh, and so without being so explicit, uh, but it, it sounds was, more for anybody listening. It sounds horrible the way we're explaining it, but it wasn't. 
There was no contact made. It was very kind of like Looney Tunes-ish with like the kid kind of like bantering and like slapping back and forth like it did. But like, man, her mom was just like on another level of like energy for doing that character. And like it was... That, that, actually, that skit's immortalized on a wall somewhere, I think, in Young Life headquarters. It is? There's a picture of it somewhere. I've seen a picture of the picture. In another, in wow, I got immortalized yeah. in Young Life headquarters? Yes, I think so. Um, well, that just put a smile on my face tonight. <laughs> Cheers to that, Molly's yeah. mom. Yeah, that was, that was great. But, uh, but I think oh that gosh. You, you definitely do. You definitely have... Um, the ability to reach that population that you're working with. Uh, and even starting back that long ago, which had to have been eight, ten, ten, ten years, years ago, ago, over ten, ten years, years ago, ago now. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm getting news pictures in my feed now of when I left Young Life, and this is right when I got out of college in order to go work with Invisible Children, you probably remember when I was doing all that all that stuff to apply to be one of the roadies and it was that experience funny enough because that involved traveling on the road in a like twelve person minivan. Which is that that's a whole other experience if I I could spend time on a podcast talking about because I really haven't gone into much of that and I feel like from like um that's a good mental health like episode I can do and man, you know I need to get a hold of my friend Bethany Bealsma. She's a therapist as well. And I've been meaning to like talk with her. And she is somebody I would like love to talk about that experience with. And like, I don't know, just a lot of stuff, the good things that, that was entailed with that and the efforts that people put in. Because I know Invisible Children was highly publicized during the Coney 2012 campaign with Jason Russell and the mental, let's just say, break that he had. I'm not going to sit here and try to diagnose that that because I I have something in the back of my mind, but it's been so long since I've read up on that that I don't I don't want to just like haphazardly speak yeah. into that. But I don't know, that guy is just a really good man, and I remember I was in grad school at the time, if I'm not mistaken, when I heard about that, and so again. Things weirdly aligned for the work that I've been doing and what I ended up in for mental health. And it was that experience with Invisible Children that solidified me wanting to go into that because I was able to co-labor with a lot of kids and teens and college students at the different venues we, we would go to. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm giving you like gather around the campfire story time about this right now. But, I enjoy it. But that... That was the catalyst because I had many kids ask me, how did you get into doing this? Can I do this one day? And like being a roadie for invisible children and connecting with people who are global citizens unto themselves and wanting to have that mindset to look beyond America and just themselves to help people was like the closest thing I ever felt to being famous and like a good sense of the word why I was out there yeah. with our advocates who'd come over from Uganda and were traveling with us. And, you know, kind of going to a little bit of story time with this while we're talking about it. Um, yeah. I was privileged to work on the SoCal team with my buddy Garrett, Amy, Christina, and Jolie Okat, who was essentially the woman who founded invisible children with the help of jason 
and his other buddies. Their names are alluding to me right now, but they are. I know them and they're in the back of my head. Pardon me if any of you end up listening to this. But we got, we were privileged to have her and my buddy Okello Ronald, who traveled in our tour van. And so, Jolie, I have many memories driving through like Los Angeles with the horrible traffic that they have there. (laughs) And mind you, our tour van that we were in had broken power steering. And so you're having to crank crank, this thing. And so we we would be on the highway out there. And I look at myself and the anxiety I deal with now. I don't know that I did how I didn't have full on and I've like I've never had like a full on panic attack before that was just induced naturally. I've had caffeine induced mm-hmm. panic attacks while working in JD's juvenile detention. But you would have think that the traffic on those highways being multi lane highways and having to get over that that would have like sparked something in me. Man, what a time to be alive out there. And one of the most poetically ironic moments was when the van was literally dying and we got off on an exit and none of us knew what this building we were going to was in like this big arch driveway that we came around and stopped. It was a crematorium that we stopped in front of. And the, Just a quick stop. And the, we named the van Gus. Gus the bus because of how poorly it operated and we we were staying at all these different host families out there up and up and down the state of california and in nevada and like i've been to some of the most breathtakingly beautiful places in that state Mm -hmm. that i like i they told us to journal our experience while we were out there because it's something that I don't know if someone said you'll regret if you don't because of like the experiences you'll have, but like I don't have regrets that I live by. I like I can look back on that experience. I have vivid memories of all these different places we went to, especially Salvation Mountain and Slab City, which I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Into the Wild, but it's featured in that film with Emile Hirsch. And but like yeah one host home we went to for a wonderful woman shay i'm again respecting last names here was on this neighborhood that was on like this incline road i shit you not eric that was like on a 60 to like 70 degree (laughs) incline and like every time we went up this thing with the full van Oh, I can't like imagine. we were praying that this thing wouldn't give out and roll behind it and we would like get be rocking in the van just to get it up this thing and like there was I don't know wow. that was a again pun intended a long and arduous road because even even throughout that experience when you bring that many personalities and you stuff them into a sardine can of a van like there's bound to be moments where people clash and yeah. you know we even had a buddy from invisible children our buddy josh who came out and got sent out to work with our team because i guess something had gone back to like our higher ups that we were having friction we were still doing well with all of our screenings mm-hmm. but josh one of the most wonderful human beings i've ever met did like a pseudo group family counseling with us where we were able to like figure out like how to like operate better as a well-oiled machine, but 
man, if that experience did not teach me to end this story, it taught me how to take constructive criticism from very vocal coaches and people who were cared about the message they were sharing, rightfully so, and wanted to make sure that the people who represented them were giving their best, sharing the story accordingly, and doing so from like an authentic air of character and personality. So I remember looking back on that, just being really pissed off at some of the people who were trying to teach us. And like looking back on that, how childish that was to like have those feelings. But like in hindsight, how thankful I am to have had coaches and people like that. Zach especially um, is another great human being who I know I look back on that experience and I like I can think of times there were I did silly and for lack of a better word stupid things that caused friction between him and I a little bit or maybe I perceived it to be that much at the time and in hindsight he's one of the best people I met there at that time as far as like teaching me to carry the fire if you will and to have that that cred- credo of like doing well <laughs> yeah. and I do you mind if I circle us back to the movie here uh, for a second? Do, do it. Um, so in the film, man has like this ideology. And I'm just going to continue to use man and boy and woman respectively because that's yeah. literally what the credits call them. Right. And in the film, man teaches his son about carrying the fire, which is almost like a religious credo of sorts that they operate by yeah. where... In the day and age they live in, after this disaster where the bombs went off and there were low percussive thuds in the distance, the audience is led to believe that the world's ending came by nuclear disaster. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you the fire. Take it, Eric. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so the uh, the families you know, left to, to figure out how to live. And, and not only live, but find purpose yes. in living uh, in this post-apocalyptic you know, world where there's no electricity and food is scarce and people are out to kill you. And um, there's this, this huge struggle for purpose, I think. And um, the first, I'd say, you know, spoiler alert, victim of that is, is the woman, you know? Yeah. And you can see that if there was anyone who lost, I wouldn't say never had, but lost the fire, that that's her. Um, and there's just no, there's no purpose for her, I think. And she couldn't, she, if it was there, she couldn't find it. And um, makes the decision to, you know. And walk to, off to into walk the off. dark, which is, yeah. again, one of the creepiest moments of the film. And you might like there's something you Before, have a thought. You... I have a thought, yes, about about walking off. There's also something kind of noble about that too, because I think maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't think I am, but there were there's a revolver and there's only two rounds left. I think. And she leaves it for the boy and man. Right, right. And so in her mind, it may it was the most noble to go out in the middle of winter. N- without any supplies and, and there was she literally left with nothing knowing full well that she was going to face the bitter cold elements to die alone uh to force the to force the yeah. man into the position where he no longer has the excuse of i don't have enough ammunition to 
to take it all away. Mm-hmm. So um, we we have our third <laughs> third guest of the show coming up here really quick. Hey, Welcome, hey, buddy. <laughs> As he bangs into the microphone. Oh, Hudson. Oh. Hello. He loves you, Eric. My yes. word. I have I love dogs. I have a thing for for dogs. Hudson. I got two of my own. You're wild, my friend. He's great. He's great though. That door just wafted open and you heard him like come flying out. Oh yeah. my gosh, that was funny. I was fully prepared for lots of dog kisses. Much welcomed there. So. But yeah. with the mom walking out to the cold, I took some time, much like my exam that I just took with all the different vignettes they give you with the people and what you're trying to deduce from that via deductive reasoning on how you're going to treat them and get them in counseling and you know provide them the most ethical and safe services that you can in order to ensure on some level that they'll get out of it and be better for it kind right. of thing even though as a therapist you can never guarantee or ensure of course somebody's well-being that's it's a it's a working relationship there yeah. so the mom though with the information presented by the vignette aka the film right we don't see her struggling with any history of mental illness prior to the incident, we'll call it. The only thing we're cued in on is this blissful period of time where her and man are drinking in each other's love, essentially, going on long car rides, longingly staring at each other, you know, getting it on on a Sunday afternoon and they're in their bedroom and just enjoying each other's company. But that is also where the variable of her getting pregnant gets introduced into the film. And if I could single out anything as like a potential diagnosis, yes, she's dealing... And something I when I talk to a lot of people and I talk about depression, like clinical like depression, like a major depressive disorder, where someone's dealing with, you know a number of different criteria for like two weeks at a time where they're going through these episodes which fun fact if that depression persists like consistently not just those two weeks and it goes on for two years that somebody deals with that you're dealing with something called dysthymia dysthymia whatever you want to call it which is pretty much the eors of depression that you just got that through line of lowness all the time but and looking at mom here, I we're not really given a duration of information no. to figure out whether or not this is just a like a MDD we'll call it major depressive disorder that has like that's recurrent whether it's severe, moderate, mild because the DSM uses all these different like criteria to like flag you know what what kind of episode somebody is having. But the thing that I landed on was postpartum depression for mom. And this is the one that makes the most sense within the confines of this film. Because there's one line in particular where she looks at man and says, I'm butchering it here to a degree, but when that child was born, my heart and soul were literally ripped out of me. I like I had nothing left, you know, once that child was born. And the... When you're looking for feelings of worthlessness or hopelessness, again, criteria for postpartum, 
And then there's peripartum depression where that depression begins during pregnancy and then carries on after the fact. And so we're working, looking for that low energy, those feelings of worthlessness, hopelessness. And there's more that I can list here, but for the sake of time, mom and her coldness that you see towards boy in the scenes after the calamity mm-hmm. really at least for me i don't have to say that i'm clinically right about this people but this was my takeaway from the film and ultimately when we see her become engulfed in active suicidal thoughts you know man's ideology of carrying the fire is not enough for her. She doesn't want to survive. And I'm going to make a weird parallel here to another film. So let me know if I'm off here. She reminded me of Marion Cotillard, I think her name is, who plays Maul in Inception. Where, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen that film, skip ahead like two minutes, please. (laughs) In that film, you find out that Leonardo DiCaprio, when they're stuck in a dream state because of this technology they're using, the only way they can get out of that dream state is by death. But they'd gone so many levels deep into this dream, this ideology and belief of a perfect life, that the only way he could convince his wife was to literally plant an idea in this metaphorical safe that they show in a house and he uses a top that he spins and closes the door on and plants the seed which ultimately leads to them both committing suicide in that dream to get run over by a train and wake up but and the reason this hit a nail for me because the affect that maul shows when she comes back to reality was much like woman in the road where the reality that they once had was so potent that literally nothing could suffice or give them that feeling of like thriving or being alive. And I think she does use that word like, I don't want to survive. I want to be alive. I want to thrive kind of thing. And right, right. So to me, I could like the goose while he's just talking about that because when she says those lines, like who is he to fault her for feeling that way? There's truth to that. And honestly... Right. One of the questions I thought to ask you, and I could see that you got a number of thoughts brewing with what I just said. So mm-hmm. start with this question, then open that can of whoop ass there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, like, honestly, like, if we were in a similar position, let's say, of any of these characters in the film, hard question here do you think you would be able to find that purpose and ability to thrive? And knowing that the world is never going to be the same again. And for all accounts and purposes, the world is evolving in a way to flush humanity out because we're no longer needed. You know, uh, I've thought about that uh, as as a moment of uh, kind of looking inward after watching that movie, during watching that movie. Um, And I honestly, you know, you can't say because we hardly know ourselves, I think until we are in the moment right but i would like to say i would like to think that um i would kind of have the perspective that the man does you know um because uh you can plateau 
in that situation. I think there's, and the plateau things kind of suck. I mean, there's little food, um, the hygiene is terrible. I mean, what are you living for every day? Just trying to live another day, or or is there some purpose? There's always, you know, finding some meaning, some objective, planning for some long term goal that requires more than just survival is mm-hmm. something that I've always ended up like that I that I think about. And so I think that if I was to answer that question, yeah, I think I would probably be the one encouraging people, you know. You would transcend them. that S curve of different difficulties you were yeah. telling me about earlier. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and I think if you want to the, the S curve of difficulty going back to video games, you know, and um, where typically we were, we were talking about earlier, where most games in the linear storytelling sense have an S curve where things begin relatively easy and they, they slowly begin to get more difficult and then there's like a ride up the curve uh, where things become more difficult and then you kind of even back out where you've got all of your equipment all of the skills up so you can beat the last boss kind of thing well uh, in the long dark you know as we were discussing earlier that's almost the inverted case you start out with very little supplies things try to eat you the the weather tries to kill you um it's immediately the it, road the video game from it, the get-go. it is yeah and that's actually there's a good reason why i like that game and i like that movie they're, they're in that same vein for me but you start off with with nothing and, and things get easier that it's the it's the opposite and you get to a point i know that i in the context of this game can explain that it gets to the point where things are boring because you have supplies you have the ability you're holed up somewhere and there's nothing to do but plan for the next day, but you've already got that set. You've got enough food. You've got enough water. You've got things. And there's no challenge. And I find myself in a position where you just start a new game and make things more difficult and hope by the time you get to that point next time that the supplies that are available to you start to run out as soon as you get comfortable. Or in, in layman's terms, you're hoping that a hungry bear sweeps through your cabin and <laughs> right. eats about the 13 pounds of like deer meat that you had there right, and right. tramples the matches and st- and maybe you know it eats a pocket full of ammunition while you're, while you're at it too right yeah there's there's the hope that things that the s curve begins to go back up in this case so really it's a u curve but you know whatever we'll uh we'll use the analogy um and so uh as someone i personally do like uh being prepared i try to prepare for lots of things uh, whether it's a personal um emergency or apocalypse or the actual you know zombies walking apocalypse so um i i think about that and um within the scope of a game you're limited in the things that you can accomplish right you can only make so many um challenges within the context of of the mechanics that are giving you because the gameplay is limited even if it's a very broad sandbox type thing um and so you can get to a point where you know it, it's not worth playing you're it's boring and i think that there's an analog for that in real life but there are people and i hope that i'm one of them that can find that extra bit of meaning and purpose that even when you have 
the next day to look forward to, which is only there so that you can make ready for the following day. That there is some long-term plan that even if it's one of your own creation, that it is still something to strive for uh, and, and, and work towards and share that with somebody else. In this case, the analogy would be the, the man with the boy mm-hmm. and, and sharing and constantly asking, do you have the fire? And that fire being purpose, uh, the will to live, move on. And even with the confines of the movie, the carrying the fire has a weird sense of utility to it because there are points in the film when they're being pursued by this cannibalistic gang of like road warriors, very akin to like Mad Max, if you will, if you can think of like the, their tattered appearance and overall griminess. But man has to take a life in order to protect his kid to protect the boy and so in reality they're no better than these people yeah. and so and i would not say some ways they, they are no better than these people who are chasing them it's a matter of perspective on the ideology that they adhere to and the boy who bless his little heart you know has no experience beyond this father yeah. adheres to that where if you look at it in the big picture of life is good qualities that you naturally would want to adhere to. Right. You know, love your neighbors, you love yourself, take care of those who you see when you come across them. And even man at some points in the film, especially with the character played by Robert Duvall, of all people, it clicked on me who it was while I was watching it. You know, there's a, like a good Samaritan moment in the film where mm-hmm. this old man is just happens to be passing by and the boy... You know, they had their plateau moment, if you will, yeah. in video gaming <laughs> lingo here after they find a bomb shelter that was filled to the brim with perishables and cans of food that hadn't gone bad and water and whiskey and, spam. you know, spam. <laughs> and uh, I think it, they had like a access to even a shower in yeah. there or something. And, yeah. you know, and I haven't touched upon man's mental health issues of anything if he's the the intrusive thoughts that he's having about woman the nightmares that he i would say on some levels like they're good dreams are having but you can tell he's always like taken aback when he wakes up after having them yeah. it would not surprise me if he was dealing with some trauma related disorder teetering on you know the ones that are most that you the one that you usually see most predominantly in films is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And even though man keeps it together for the most part, but he's definitely hypervigilant. You see the fight or flight responses, you know, just like Hudson rolling in here again with a lamb chop. Welcome back, the long dark. (laughs) And, And every time Hudson does that, I tell people who I'm recording with, like it's like that CNN video of the dad his little girl walks in where she's like <laughs> yes. flexing the arms yes. and punching and the mom kindly comes and gets the kid and like closes the doors we're having that moment right now actually that's great though <laughs> he knows as soon as he leaves i wish anybody listening to this could meet this dog like he's he's an oafish big brown bear of a dog who just loves people to no end and 
He's never met Eric, but you'd think that Eric was like a long-lost family member with He's the great. way he greeted him tonight. But I'm completely off. I was talking about mm-hmm. man, and yeah. So that's my thoughts on his character. Again, we're not really given much to go off of with him outside of, again, what the film presents within the tightly woven narrative. And boy, does this film not... It does not take detours it for most a lot of book to movie adaptations take a lot of liberties. I feel like sometimes yeah. or weave out too much. And I've been told by many a person that the book is actually way more grim, even more so than the film in some ways. It's hard to imagine for me. For At sure. least from like the the cannibalism point of view, yeah. I think is goes into a lot more grimy stuff. Which again. I intend to listen to the audiobook, so I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll have be to... a happy listener to, to go yeah. to bed at night with. Yeah, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, the to make a weird comparison here, then I'll pipe down here. The last movie to book adaptation that I saw was Doctor Sleep with Ewan McGregor. Phenomenal, by the way, if you yeah. haven't seen that. And I'm currently in the process of reading Doctor Sleep right now, and. It's essentially the sequel to The Shining and what happened to little Danny Torrance when he became a man and what became of his X-Men-like powers to, like, read minds and commune with the dead kind of thing. So it's it's a very powerful film as far as, like, generational trauma, alcoholism, overcoming perceived failure. Like, I have, like, again, if you're into anything like that, rent that movie, man, because... The best part is, like, they did a director's cut where it's truly a director's cut where there's 30 minutes added to the the film. And the director actually went and the footage was more stuff that's mentioned in the book. And the film was reframed in, like, chapters from, like, the book, the way he cut it up. So I haven't seen it yet, but the way he talked about it on social media sounded really cool. So there's that. Yeah. That is something I, I had no idea that was the plot of mm-hmm. that movie. I skipped over that movie because it didn't. The register. release window was horrible for yeah. it. It should have been in October. And, like, when I saw it, it, it was my favorite film of 2019. Yeah. And Ewan McGregor, like, I, I just love that guy. Like, he is, he's having a career resurgence right now, which I know a lot of people are mainly looking forward to him being Obi-Wan again in that Disney limited series are doing rightfully so but he was delightful in this film and yeah I don't want to go into much because I don't want to spoil it but he's great going back to what you were saying about um, the experiences I think you were talking about dreams that man was having mm-hmm. and uh, I have been thinking about some of the conflict that you saw with him on the bridge with the, that scene with the ring and uh, looking at the dreams that kept, that was a moment where they kept doing flashbacks, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're going back to the dreams and um, there is a part of it. I think at least my, my interpretation of it um, is that he has was having trouble letting go of, the ring because the ring represented a lot of memories that while painful were kind of an anchor into Mm -hmm. a lot of the um, ways that he was 
retaining the fire, right? It had purpose, had um, kind of a, a vision to move forward. And there's a risk, I think, that he was acknowledging that if that were to go over the edge, that he would lose the last retaining, you know, pin for the memories of his wife. Uh, and in doing so, also lose that anchor to the good things that that made him who he was and it could have been even a selfless act for the boy to to know that he's going to continue to deal with these internal things to be able to um, struggle for the sake of retaining those good things that will allow him to teach and lead the boy so that he can survive and, and continue going. And I think that, I, I don't know if that's overanalyzing it, but that's some of the things that I, I had considered when watching that scene and maybe why it was so um, memorable for me. The boy had been asking about the mom a lot more, I think, at that point in the film. So I think th with that utility and being selfless with doing that, I think that was also... To build off what you're saying also wait for him to like distract the boy because at, at this point too we've been seeing him develop this gag grizzly cough that he's been having throughout mm -hmm. the whole film so whether it's pneumonia he has or like some other illness that's developed from being in the wild um what bro that's a good old discord sound effect right there we're going out oh my gosh it's like a moment here what is going on one second here Post edit. That is a post edit here. Yeah. We're just going to log out here and goodbye. But back on track here. So, as they venture towards the end of the film, which again, well, I, I think conversationally wise, we're doing good here. We're already at an hour and five minutes. So I think. I don't want to spoil the ending for the people in case anybody happens to watch it, but I think from a perfunctory stance, we we'll, can at least... We'll just stop right now, go watch the movie, and yeah. then finish the podcast. There we go. And How so... about that? I didn't even think, you know... I just, Yeah. So there you go. You heard it directly from Eric. Pause here, go watch the movie, and come back. All right. Welcome back. <laughs> so... As they venture towards this beach that they're going to to find water and just a more habitable place to live, we literally see man shriveling away and just becoming just more painful to watch for the two of them. And it's becoming readily apparent that boy is going to be on his own yeah. fairly shortly here. And by the time we do reach the end of the film... They get to this beach and they just there's this ominous feeling throughout the entire film that honestly not many other films that I've seen in my lifetime have affectively been able to communicate as well as this one. Mm -hmm. And while watching it, it didn't help that I was like halfway asleep. And like on the couch there, I think Alyssa was on a trip of some kind so i was watching it alone and the film really does convey like this foreboding sense of like yeah finality of being alone 
and never knowing what's truly around the corner. So by the time it got done, I remember just like turning it off, like blurry eyed, walking back to the room. I was like, I, I think I jokingly said, man, Eric, what a movie to pick. <laughs> and I just like, I just walked back into oblivion and fell asleep that night. But I don't know, where did, where did this film leave you by the time the credits rolled? I think this is a good question. Well, there are two things to, that I took away. Uh, the first time I watched the movie, the, the the primary concept that I took away from it was kind of was kind of full of despair. I mean, this this guy has been working to prepare his son to go off alone, mm-hmm. and you don't. I don't get the sense from from the movie that he is prepared i mean he's mentally prepared but he has no idea of some of the dangers that they'll encounter he has no uh concept of of some of the things that you have to have you know pre-apocalyptic knowledge right uh, everything's post-apocalyptic and it's it's from this closed container of his life with his mm-hmm. family which is two and then one person and um and so there's this fear like there's no way he's going to survive. There's no way that he's going to be okay. And even with the uh, the family that he he meets at the end, even with that, there's kind of hope there, but it was so overshadowed by all of the sorrow and sadness for the dad yeah. and and kind of this this huge loss um, and sense of hopelessness that I didn't really capture much of the hope there with the family arriving and and potentially taking this boy on and at the same time the second time watching it um preparing for this Mm -hmm. here uh because it had been a very long time since watching it i actually took away something much more positive from that and i i mirror the the i think what my friend had mentioned to me about this movie when he says do you have the fire you know uh there's this moment where there's a connection of people who uh are complete strangers and this guy is hoping this little kid who just lost his dad doesn't shoot him you know and he's asking the question do you have the fire and that that whether he knows it or not is whether he lives or dies mm-hmm. right uh do you have the fire if he answered no because that seems absurd like who has fire right now like why why would anyone have this um the, the super literal terminology um would have would mean that the boy would probably shoot him or or try something like that but then he, he says he thinks about it for a second and i don't know whether it's just smarts or he actually understood the what was being asked of him at that moment and he says yes um and that was kind of like the gateway to then seeing the dog and the rest of the family and that there's like a family unit that is operating clearly with the fire right and so there's this much much more hope there that yeah he he makes it um or he has a way better chance now yeah um and less less focus on how sad it was um, in the moments leading right up to that. When I, I had it, like, 
the film is so uneasy that even when that scene happens, I think I was, I was telling you right before this, where like you, you, I felt some of that hope, but even then I was like, man, I'm like, good luck, kid. I'm like, yeah. there's there's no talent with this family, like, because like the way the man appears, he looks like he's dressed well enough, but he looks like one of the trucker bandits a little bit that you see earlier on in the yeah, film. He's a little bit skeptical, I think. And for for all we know, this could be a family who kills and eats people and that's how they stay alive because they did Mm -hmm. they looked a little bit greasier looking than yes the the, the boy and man which i think was done intentionally to put audiences on edge yeah so yes it does end on that hopeful note but man can you imagine had like if the movie just ended with the boy on the beach there and it's just him pushing that i like i feel like test audiences probably would have been like would have left the movie with some form of depression <laughs> yes yes oh for real yeah uh i i definitely agree with that for sure yeah and like and that that's the road in a nutshell and like and it literally in a nutshell because we've only spent a little bit over an hour talking about it but again i think that for me I, I stray away from like making a review out of any of this, but my favorite elements of the film, and usually with any post-apocalyptic film, is how the world is conveyed around the characters. And there's a lot of cool moments in the film, especially when there's like an earthquake that happens at one point. Like the kid, the, yeah. the man and boy are woken up while taking a nap and trees are collapsing around them and like, big pockets of land are lifting up like it's literally and there's like fire too like there's like there's like this encroaching like huge forest yeah. fire behind them too like it's yeah. like burning the world to make it really cold and it's like the earth is almost like trying to like swallow the remaining pockets of life that exist humanity wise and so I'd say even more so than the bandits who are trailing them, Mother Earth becomes, I would say, like the biggest villain of the film, yep. just for the elements that they have to face. And like, fun question. Now I was thinking about this earlier. Like, I know there's a lot of battle royale style mm-hmm. video games that exist. Yes. What would it be like though if like you took a game where it's like a bunch of people and they do make a large enough play space where you and all these people start out in your homes with your families people are playing like husband wife kid avatars that they get and like let's say like kind of like very fallout style there's a nuclear blast that happens you have to run and find shelter like do you do you think a video game like this would ever exist as like a simulator for like or like so i know like Battle Royales, I feel like, are the closest thing that we get to that right now, right. outside of, like, the Fallout series, where you see that from, like, a f- sci-fi, retro 50s, like, stylized way of, like, oh, the bombs are falling, let's get to our right. Right. government-sanctioned bomb shelters and emerge as travelers kind of thing, but, like, how do you think any studio would ever have the gall to make a game like that, to, like, as a simulator for that? I, you know, first of all, let me say, I would play that game. But I'm I'm a very niche gamer, mm-hmm. um, so 
Uh, I would probably say that if I was a smart developer, I wouldn't touch that idea because I think the premise of that kind of relies on the connection that you have with your family. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to replicate the kind of connection, even though we kind of get there. Think of the companion cube for Portal, you know. Um, you you have a connection, and you don't want to let that go. But in the end, I'll throw polygons into a fire to survive, right? And and so having a family, especially having a five-month-old now, um, when you look at all of the dangers that you'd have to traverse in a situation like that, I don't... I, there are decisions that I would not make... Um, in real life, obviously, that I would make in a game. And they're so different. It's not like there's like less of an impact. They're almost complete opposite differences, mm -hmm. that, that choices that you'd make. And it would be really difficult to get players to engage, I think. Cooperatively, even. Yeah, it, it, even just to say, my children and my wife are, you know, or significant other, um, are so valuable to me in this game that I would make the decisions for protection, you know, without or not take risks, right? That um, I don't think... It, I think there's a, a grasp for realism that just can't be attained there. Mm -hmm. um, but I, <laughs> I would love to make that. I would love to roleplay that. Yeah, I, I think that would be awesome. Uh, what I'm basically saying is I don't think there are very many of me to, to buy it. Which is why it is purely financial decision as a developer. As a concept, I love it. I, I think that would be amazing. But um, just from a, a kind of from a business sense, I don't think anyone would want to touch it. Uh, just because there probably wouldn't be a demand for it. But. Can I make an odd parallel? Sure. And I won't go into it too much because you told me you didn't want spoilers. And granted, for as much as I play it, I don't think there really <laughs> is anything I can spoil. No worries. But... Um, I'm actually wearing a necklace here that you probably heard, like, clank, clanking and jingling in this episode. It's actually Norman Reedus, the character in Death Stranding. It's these little rectangular equations that he wears that he's taking to, like, different cities, if you will, to react or reactivate something called the chiral network um, to bring about better communication and transportation of, like, goods and whatnot because... In that version of apocalyptic society, um, there's no more automated deliveries. There is no Amazon Prime. Technology is like gone by the wayside in a sense where the only way to transport goods now is by foot. And Hideo Kojima, in his brilliance, if you will, and I'm not a fanboy of the guy, but I've played his other games specifically in the all of the metal gear solid games so i have an appreciation for the niche mm -hmm. high art sci-fi espionage stuff that he makes it's really off kilter and weird but at the same time approachable and playable and holy crap eric is he he's made a video game that's that literally has subverted the average person's expectations for what they want out of an action adventure like third person game and i know leading up to the release of death stranding and kojima leaving 
Konami where he was making the Metal Gear games and that that was a whole bit of drama there which saw him making his own studio Kojima Productions Mm -hmm. that there was an air of mystery around this game that nobody knew what it was going to be about well what it turned out to be was a game focusing on connection and building building strands between your fellow human being wherever they may be and the game is literally one big social experiment in you playing this delivery guy who's tasked with taking gigantic boxes and the weight of the world if you want a guy looks like atlas shrugged literally walking around with these towers of boxes on his back and his arms that he's using like these crazy outfits to like put them on and disperse the weight and that's the core gameplay element right now for the point of the game that i'm in is taking these elements to these disenfranchised communications to build a network across america to reconnect everyone and there's very overt political messaging and what he's doing with the game and i love that already um I don't I I don't get political with this podcast for a number of reasons because that again opinions are opinions and I'm not going I don't, I don't know I don't want to bring it into this but I like games that strive to find you finding the best in other people and trying to connect and from a mental health standpoint the subversion this game has created and i i have not looked at sales numbers yet for how well this is sold for playstation right. i'm willing to bet it has not been a lot and i know it's coming out this summer on steam so mm. there's respite for you there to get it and play yeah. it which highly recommend even from like four to five hours of playing it right now that being the case after reading reviews and other people's opinions and what they think of it all i knew after passing this licensing exam that i just took is that i and we talked about this at length before the episode i really didn't want to go back to playing the fps mmo sci-fi grindy shooter destiny 2 that i've been playing literally above anything else for the past two years and I've gotten burnt out on the incessant loop of shooting and killing space aliens and playing multiplayer and killing people and getting triggered by really nasty people that you play online who say incredibly hurtful things sometimes that go beyond, like, again, I should never be surprised because it's the internet, but as a human, it never fails to impress me how vile people can be in that area. Yeah. And the sheer notion of thinking about that and wanting to play that game and get caught up in that play loop again and having to make like almost like a job of playing that because of how much you have to loop it, mm-hmm. as I told you before, literally caused a level of like stress for me where I'm like, I don't even want to touch that with the 10th pole right now. So where I found myself is playing very mental health focused player isolated games like no man's sky yeah celeste which i finished today i treated myself as a reward to buy death stranding and 
you know, I had a buddy of mine who played it and enjoyed it to a degree, and I'm sure he'll probably pick it up and play it again someday, but, you know, given all the games that come out and just his taste and whatnot, it didn't strike a chord with him, so even that caused a pang of concern for mm-hmm. me. But I'll be damned. Like, it is my cup of tea to a tea from the world building it does, the science fiction, and again, the world it builds around this character and literally being alone on these roads and encountering very weird paranormal elements and people who are called mules in the game, which these are the vestiges of society that, let's just say, don't comply with the remaining people and what they're trying to do. In the data file I read on these characters earlier today, they're essentially people who are very aggressive, let's just say Amazon delivery people, where they are so obsessed with delivering and getting packages and like the items in them that the game has like framed it like it's a mental disorder of their own that these people have, where if they see a porter like Sam, the character you're playing, if that per- if he doesn't happen to have any deliverable items on him, they'll leave him alone. They just don't care. But the moment they see him carrying crates and whatnot, they are on you like a pack of hyenas. And it is actually really creepy. Wow. And like, you know, again, I thought it'd be cool just to talk about this for a moment. I'll stop here because I, while I, was, I hadn't played this while watching the road. and But... This game is literally going to be about the lo- the road less traveled. And the final thing I'll say about the social experiment of the game is that Kojima has put a system in where you can build things, whether they're shelters, storage lockers, bridges, literal ladders that you can weave across rivers, ropes to, to ascend and descend into ravines and whatnot, and much like social media... You can click the touchpad on the PlayStation controller and leave likes for it. There is no element in the game where you can leave negativity. It's all rooted in support, like, building, cooperation. Hmm. And so the game really does fly in the face of your average shooter game or competitive multiplayer game where... Again, people are at their worst when they're playing online. And that's, I read a funny article where someone was saying that that's tried to creep into this game a little bit, where trolls will leave vehicles or the larger vehicles in the game you can use later on, blocking pathways that you can't get past. But Kojima Productions was smart, and in an update that came out a while back, they put in a thing where if it's an item you find in your game world, you can hold down the option button and dismantle it and clear the pathway kind of thing, Mm -hmm. thus making way for people who would try to clear out who would do that kind of stuff to you. So again, this is the type of game I did not know that I wanted until I played it. And symbolically, this little necklace I'm wearing here, like I might wear it to work one day or some days during the week just as like a reminder of like what I'm doing to build connection with people so they too can better connect with the people around them and so yeah that's all I got Death Stranding it may not be for you 
but give it a gun. If you hate it, don't blame me. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Do you have any more thoughts about the road, or how are you feeling right now? Uh, no, I think we've pretty much covered all that I can recall. Did I talk too much? No, I, I was worried I was going to. No, you, you talked just well. You carried yourself with a candor and a vigor tonight. Oh, much so, appreciated. But to that end, I like one of the cliche questions I ask at the end here is like, oh, if anybody can find you on the internet, do you have any works or things people can find you? If there's <laughs> nothing, you don't have to say anything. But um, uh, is there anything or... You know, I, I do, I don't really run anything social media wise. I have very little interest in that. You're a smart man. Um, uh, I, I will use Facebook, but I'm more a consumer than anything else. Um, but if you have anything uh, game related, if you're any, interested in anything that has to do with video games, it is a passion of mine. Um, you might be able to find things here and there under the moniker that I usually use, which is Tactical X from the uh, Xbox Live gamertag days. That was mm-hmm. uh, my cool gamertag. So Tactical EX. Um, I run a website, Tactical X Studios, um, which is where I throw things when I have them. But there's not much there, except for something that was related to a game that has been unfortunately brought offline since October 2019. But... Um, uh, if you see a tool for a game uh, or anything like that and it's been authored by Tactical X, that's me. Um, right now I have uh, one tool on GitLab um, for The Long Dark, if you have an interest in that. Um, that helps with uh, saves. But um, I'll so, get that when I play. Yeah, it's uh, I got tired of dealing with, basically it's an anti-bug mechanic. You know, way to go back and save a game even if you encounter like a game breaking bug do those happen a lot in the long dark <clears throat> i've only experienced two uh and thankfully those have been uh remedied fairly quickly but you know it's a game that's still in development they're still mm-hmm. building the a lot of parts to it and they do a really good job i think uh i, I want to give the developers a lot of high praise but um you know I don't have a lot of time, and on a, a game where you you are dealing with permadeath, having to deal with a game-breaking bug is kind of tragic, and I, I really don't want people to abuse the ability to like create a save, but I also want to enable people to really get the most of the game sans bugs, right? Mm-hmm. I've worked... I'm a software development engineer in test. I deal with, you know, yep. bugs. You know, I, I'm an advocate for the user slash player, and that's something that I built for myself. Uh, and it's and it's pretty trivial. I mean, it's not it's not crazy. You know, it's not like a mod. I'm not bra- I'm not changing the game, but um, but it's something that you can use to, you know, make it so that it's not so tragic <laughs> to die by mm. a bug. You know, you can go back to a previous save, but. Anyway, that's my plug. Um, I I like to kind of fly under the radar a bit and uh, and build utilities and tools and stuff, but everything is under Tactical X. So. Thank you for sharing that, and mm-hmm. that's something I look forward to again when I play. Yeah. As always, you can find me on Deep Breath Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Psychosocial Cinema. Twitter is a bit different. It's just Psychosocial C because they have to have an abbreviated handle on there. You'll find the bulk of the episode release information on 
Instagram, and then always there's Patreon because what podcast these days goes without a, a Patreon? I don't know. You tell me. So if you're looking to get access to episodes like this a bit earlier than the average listener, and when I say average listener, because I'm always hypersensitive about things, it's not indicating if you don't use Patreon, then you're not a worthwhile participant of this experiment. But Patreon does serve as a wonderful utility to make the hosting of this show and just the tools and the time that go into it a reality. And we, my wife and I are looking to grow the podcast this year and to add a video component to it to get up on that YouTube video podcasting game that a lot of people are doing now. So, yeah, your support goes a long way with that and can make the show visually more vibrant, if you will. But thank you for listening regardless of all that. So... If you enjoyed the music you heard at the start of this episode, I always like to shout out, shout out my buddy Eric LaForest, better known as Porcelain Backsplash. He does all the, the chill tunes and the insanity that you hear. And beyond that, that is all I got. So much like... I was going to make a... No, I'm not going to make that joke. I'm going to say much like Charlize Theron, I'm going to disappear into the <laughs> night now and go get a snack and end things on a happy note. So you walk into the long, dark... The long, dark hallway that extends at the kitchen. Exactly. Yeah. Eric, this is like on a less podcastery voice note here. This was a pleasure having you here to do all this. Like, I did not presume that reconnecting with you and the tenuous strand of a friendship that we've had, not tenuous in a bad way, but because of time and distance and life and a lot of different things. Like, you know, this dude sitting across me right now was like... Played a major part of my life like 10 years ago when I was doing Young Life and him and his family and his brother Evan especially like many times we would all hang out and find I would find myself over at his house and you know there's a lot of good memories and stuff associated with that time period so I'm glad that we could rekindle this friendship over a podcast of the long dark and hopefully I won't go insane trying to play that you can offer some guidance yeah same here all right well live long and prosper everybody until next time have a wonderful evening and as always thank you for listening